Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Christopher Taylor. Chris led the initial charge against Saz van Ghent in one of the final Dutch offensives against Spain. And it was a great success. Nice work, Chris. This, of course, is all a lie. But if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Or the link in the description below. Enough about that, though. Let's get into the latest episode of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 73 of the 30 Years' War. So last time, we looked at Torstensen's war. It pretty much occupied all our attentions. We watched as Sweden defeated its old Danish enemy completely, and following a few close calls, Sweden effectively reshaped the Baltic balance of power and signed a peace with the Danes in August 1645. That narrative brought the Swedish story up to the second half of that year, but what about Sweden's contemporaries? Specifically, what were the French and Dutch doing to keep the Emperor busy as Sweden engaged in the more glamorous and striking war with the Danes? In this episode we find out, and in the process we link the two theatres together, just in time for the Westphalia talks to properly begin in spring 1645. We've got a lot to get through today, so without any further ado, I'll now take you all to the eventful year of 1644. Cardinal Mazarin had no choice but to grin and bear it. French isolation in 1644 was compounded by the Swedish preoccupation with Denmark, which meant that, for arguably the first time, Two branches of the Habsburg family, theoretically, had free reign to engage with and pressure the French positions. Mazarin may have envisioned nightmarish scenarios where France was overrun across the Rhine and the Pyrenees, but the reality was far less disastrous, if somewhat unglamorous. In March and April 1644, French plenipotentiaries began to arrive at Munster and Osnabrück, as the Westphalian Conference began without Danish mediation or much enthusiasm from the Imperials. The Emperor had tried to stall his own plenipotentiaries in the hope that this would demonstrate to the Danes his desire to let King Christian serve as a mediator, which the Danish king had wanted to do. 
Pandering to the Danish king's ambitions, Emperor Ferdinand III may have believed, would induce that Danish king to formulate an alliance with the Austrian Habsburgs and improve the imperial position. But the prospects of success for this policy varied immensely from the beginning of 1644 to the end of that year, when in the latter part, the initially impressive Danish resistance was overcome all at once. King Christian had left an agent behind in Osnabrück to oversee matters, but by the autumn of 1644, he accepted that meaningful peace negotiations would begin without him. Furthermore, Christian displayed a continued hostility towards any concept of an alliance with the emperor, mostly because he didn't want to tie Denmark's hands and limit his own freedom of action. By the end of 1644, indeed, Ferdinand's opportunities for coercing Denmark into the imperial camp were lost, and the one source of military aid which the emperor did send, the drunk Matthias Gallus and his 18,000 men, were outmaneuvered and outmatched by their Swedish counterparts. It was a double disaster, but neither Ferdinand nor the French sat still while the Danish drama unfolded to the north. Presently, wrote one French official in early 1644, the only thing we can all desire is to conserve the kingdom in its entirety, and also the alliances that the late King Louis XIII has contracted. This wasn't a particularly optimistic aim, but neither Mazarin nor his officials seemed to be aiming particularly high as 1644 dawned. 1643 had been a mixed bag as far as the military sphere was concerned. Roquois was a great victory, built upon the capture of several points in the summer that followed, but the disaster at Tuttlingen in late November destroyed French progress, killed the veteran French commander, and empowered the Bavarians in the area. It had been kept relatively quiet, and as a consequence, Roquois is known today, whereas Tuttlingen is largely not. But Mazarin couldn't escape the facts, even if he had made effective use of the propaganda devices of the period. In military terms, news that Sweden would henceforth devote the majority of its power to launching a preemptive strike against its old enemy for the campaigning season of 1644 hit Mazarin like a bomb. The exit of her main ally in Germany was the very last thing he needed, and he was unsurprisingly irritated that Torstensen and Oxenstierna had acted without first consulting him. In the negotiations which were unfolding at Westphalia, Mazarin was frustrated by the Emperor's stalling, and by July 1644, he had instructed French negotiators to threaten to leave if the Habsburgs didn't proceed with meaningful dialogue. The Swedes were similarly bothered by the Habsburg stalling at Osnabrück. For much of the year, Ferdinand's agents argued that it was a question of precedence, a thorny question indeed. But by September 1644, meaningful negotiations were entered into as the military situation turned against Denmark. In the context of the Westphalian negotiations then, which would drag on for another four years as we know, 1644 is an important case not just because it provides us with a great example of how issues of precedence could slow negotiations down, but also because we see how the stance of the plenipotentiaries shifted as the military situation changed. This latter point was to become especially important as the years progressed. And what was the military situation in 1644? It was similar in many respects to the previous years, save for the absence of Sweden and the theoretical opportunity it granted to the Emperor and the King of Spain to bring their superiority in arms to bear. In many respects, 
This superiority was just theoretical. Spain was wholly occupied in the Spanish Netherlands, and it was here where French and Dutch arms would have great opportunities for success. The war had been brought to Spanish soil, and Madrid was also locked in a dual conflict with Portugal in the west of the Iberian Peninsula and Catalonia in the north. Portugal was aided intermittently by the Dutch, a weird situation considering the Dutch and Portuguese were technically at war, mostly over Brazil, while Catalonia provided the French with a new front across the Pyrenees, where the Spanish could be attacked. The new French king, six years old, Louis XIV, a guy we'll probably never hear from again, had been proclaimed Count of Barcelona as his father had been thus confirming there would be no break in the French protection of Catalonia, which the deaths of Richelieu and Louis XIII had sort of suggested. All of this meant more disaster for Spain. She was unable to pursue the war outside of her own lands as long as the French were secure in Barcelona and the Portuguese were threatening them in the West. Almost inevitably, as a consequence of these different fronts, we see Spanish influence in Germany start to buckle, especially from 1643 onwards, as money from Madrid was spent on shoring up local positions, or prioritising the Italian possessions over even the Netherlandish ones. Since the departure of Count Olivares in early 1643, King Philip IV of Spain had taken it upon himself to seize the reins of government and to direct policy with an energy and determination that his grandfather Philip II would certainly have recognised and approved of. But it was too little too late. Even if Philip remained largely positive of the prospects of success in the end, seeing all small mercies as evidence of God's favour and the promise of eventual deliverance from his enemies. At some point in early 1643, Philip came into contact with the mystic abbess Mary of Jesus of Agreda, confessing his sins and writing to her frequently for the next two decades of his life. Philip's piety have thus provided us with a treasure trove of communications where the Spanish king's innermost thoughts were often revealed to this so-called lady in blue. In one particularly lengthy letter, written in October 1644, Philip wrote, I write to you leaving a half margin, so that your reply may come on the same paper, and I enjoin and command not to allow the contents of this to be communicated to anyone. Since the day that I was with you, I have felt much encouraged by your promise to pray to God for me and for the success of my realm, for the earnest attachment towards my well-being that I then recognised in you gave me great confidence and encouragement. As I told you, I left Madrid lacking all human resources and trusting only to divine help, which is the sole way to obtain what we desire. Our Lord has already begun to work in my favour, bringing in the silver fleet and relieving Oran in Algiers when we least expected it, whereby I have been able, though with infinite tardiness for want of money, to dispose my forces here, so that we shall, I hope, start work with them this week. Although I beseech God and his most holy mother to succour and aid us, I trust very little in myself, for I have offended and still offend very much, and I justly deserve the punishments and afflictions which I suffer. And so I appeal to you to fulfil your promise to me, to clamour to God, to guide my actions and my arms to the end that the quietude of these realms may be secured and peace may reign throughout Christendom. The Portuguese rebels still raid the frontiers of Portugal, acting against God and their natural sovereign. Affairs in Flanders are in great extremity and there is a risk of a rising unless God will intervene in my favour 
and though affairs in Aragon have somewhat improved with my presence, I fear that unless we can gain some successes to encourage people here, they are liable to lose heart and to take a course very injurious to the monarchy. The necessities, of course, are numerous and great, but I must confess that it is not that which distresses me most, but the certain conviction that they all arise from my having offended our Lord. As he knows, I earnestly wish to please him and to fulfil my duty in all things, and I desire that, if by any means you arrive at a knowledge of what is his holy will that I should do to placate him, you will write to me here, for I am very anxious to do right, and I do not know in what I err. Some religious people give me to understand that they have revelations, and that God commands that I should punish certain persons, and that I should dismiss others from my service. But you know very well that in this matter of revelations one must be very careful, and particularly when these religious persons speak against those who are not really bad, and against whom I have never discovered anything injurious to me, whilst others are approved who are not usually well thought about. The general opinion about these persons is that they love turning things over and that their truth cannot be depended on. I do hope that you will keep your word to me, and will speak with all frankness as to a confessor, for we kings have much of the confessor in us. Do not let yourself be influenced by what the world says, for that is little to be depended upon, seeing the aims of those who move such discourse, but be guided solely by the inspiration of God, before whom I protest, and I have lately partaken of him in the sacrament, that I desire in all things and for all things to fulfil his sacred law and the obligation he has laid upon me as a king. And I hope in his mercy that he will take pity on our pains and help us out of those afflictions. The greatest favour that I can receive from his holy hands is that the punishment he lays upon these realms may be laid upon me. For it is I and not they who deserve the punishment, for they have always been true and firm Catholics. I hope you will console me with your reply, and that I may have in you a true intercessor with our God and that he may guide and enlighten me, and extricate me from the troubles in which I am now immersed. I, the King, Saragossa, 4th of October, 1644. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Such an incredible letter serves not just as a running commentary on the legion of woes which Philip faced, but also as a communication of his innermost thoughts and fears. He was a king who had done wrong, who had sinned many times against God, and Spanish disasters in the political and military sphere across his domains were what he perceived as his punishment. Desperate as he was to atone for these shortcomings, Philip begged Mary of Jesus to let him know urgently, if she devised God's will and instructions, for how he could make this situation right again. It is also little wonder Philip wished Mary not to share any of these details with anyone, since as he bears his soul, Philip also reveals precisely how weak he truly felt his position to be. Such an admission would have caused an unprecedented scandal in the proud, image-obsessed court of Madrid, and the confession of weakness could never become public knowledge. As the historian Martin Hume perceived, though, Philip's humility was intertwined with an unshakable confidence that he was God's anointed, the Hasburg chosen one, who would lead Spain ever onward. Hume wrote, He was weak. He confesses to have no confidence in himself, although in his heart of hearts he is striving to live well and do his duty. He is unable to struggle successfully against the worldly pleasures that have captured him, and which he pursues still, while hating himself for doing so. Conscience haunted, he is the only sinner, and the terrible conviction forces itself upon him that his personal sins of omission and commission are to be visited in awful punishment upon whole nations of innocent people. His natural justice and his knowledge of men calls him to rebel against the suggestions that come to him, even under the cloak of religion, to punish those who, in his eyes, have done so ill. And behind the regal purple and the stately port of the great office, we see the poor soul, so remorseful in the knowledge of its sin and insignificance, as to feel unworthy even to pray without a poor nun's intercession to the appalling deity he thinks he has incensed. And yet, with all this humility, how the true Spaniard peeps out in the conviction that God has his eyes specially on him, how God's designs for the universe revolve around his fortunes, his acts, and his transgressions. But the world did not revolve around King Philip IV of Spain. Affairs in Flanders are in great extremity, Philip had said during the above letter, adding that, There is risk of a rising unless God will intervene in my favour. When he communicated these fears in October 1644, Frederick Henry was engaging in one of his final campaigns against the Spanish in the Netherlands. The town of Saas van Ghent, or the Sluice of Ghent, was captured in late September 1644, and with it, one of the most important river crossings of the River Scheldt was in Dutch hands. As one historian put it, the bulwark of Ghent and of Flanders, and gave to its possessors the command of one of the principal waterways of the country. Thanks to the naval superiority of Admiral Martin Tromp, the hero of the Battle of the Downs in 1639, the Dutch navy was able to snake its way along the Flanders coastline, aiding the French as they did so, and placing the beleaguered population of the Spanish Netherlands under unprecedented pressure. While on their way to Munster, the French delegates Abel Servian and Claude Davout made a detour to The Hague, and they arrived there in 
mid-March 1644. While there, a new arrangement between the French and Dutch was agreed, the last of its kind during the war, and the French negotiators worked to ensure that the Dutch would not leave the war without first consulting them. The result, in the end, was not quite what Mazarin had been hoping for, though, because it permitted the Dutch and Spanish to negotiate separately in Munster, and only granted France the option of having a representative present during the talks. A French influence was not compulsory. In other words, if they managed to overcome their differences, it was possible that the Dutch could conclude a peace with Spain without French approval. As French plenipotentiary Abel Servian commented, Their interests with the Spanish envoys can be solved in four days, and ours, which are composed of very important different points, are not even sketched out. The French became obsessed with the idea that the Dutch would abandon them, while the Dutch became determined not to fight the Spanish for the sake of France. Indeed, with the renewed alliance of March 1644 was a renewed commitment to partition the Spanish Netherlands in the event of the region being overrun by Franco-Dutch forces. Yet it had become plain within the Dutch Republic that the erection of a common border with France would not be within the Dutch national interest. It would surely be better to preserve Dutch gains prop up the Spanish Netherlands as a buffer between France and the Netherlands and maintain the French alliance, the best of all worlds, essentially. These were the aims which now motivated the peace party of the Dutch Republic and, to a lesser extent, Frederick Henry, who led the war party. According to the French ambassador, the Dutch stadtholder Frederick Henry was even heard to remark that French interests would be better served not by seizing all of Flanders, but by focusing its attentions more on Italy or Catalonia. Coupled with these were new developments in Dutch policy, such as the keen desire to cling to Portuguese Brazil in any peace negotiations, and the concern in Holland that the Prince of Orange was hoarding too much power for himself. Both of these concerns were reflected in the fact that the size of the Dutch army was actually reduced in 1642, from more than 70,000 men to just under 60,000. Sure, it was a small reduction, but further efforts to reduce it in 1644 sent a message to Frederick Henry that the merchants and middle classes who supported the war with Spain couldn't be relied on forever, especially now that the emergency had passed and the threat to national security posed by Spain, which had been so potent in the mid-1620s, had virtually vanished now. Nor was this all. The pervasive influence of the more intolerant Calvinist preachers in the Republic aroused much suspicion not only against Catholics, but also against Catholic France. One of the French negotiators, Claude Davout, had not helped improve these sentiments when he made the admirably moderate but strategically unwise declaration to the States-General in March 1644, to the effect that The rigour which you use against them regarding the exercise of their religion, the strict prohibition of all religious assemblies, the covetousness of your commissioners and the scorn which they often show for those things which we hold most sacred, have caused some minds to become embittered. Would you win them back? Would you again join up this part of your state which is now cleft from it? Would you make good citizens of them? Then, soften the rigour of your edicts and ordinances. The names of Catholic and Hollander can go together. It is possible to be the enemy of the King of Spain without being a Protestant. 
Clearly, Davo was talking about Dutch unity with the Spanish Netherlands here, and Davo's master had provided good evidence for this latter point, as Catholic France continued to engage with Catholic Spain, largely across the Pyrenees in 1644, but also in the western portion of the Spanish Netherlands, where defences were traditionally weaker than they were along the border with the Dutch. Gaston d'Orléans, the rebellious brother of the late king, oversaw a campaign against the Spanish position in Flanders by seizing Gravelines in late July 1644, and Piccolomini, the imperial general hired to salvage the situation there, could provide no answer. Impressive though the returns were for France, this campaign succeeded only to engender jealousy among the opponents of Frederick Henry. One could be justified in wondering how the tottering Spanish regime in Flanders remained in place. A key reason was religious belief, and the fear among Catholics of the Spanish Netherlands that the increasingly hard-line Calvinist Contra Remonstrance, who, we'll recall, had done so much damage to common Dutch cooperation during the Twelve Years' Truce period, would never grant Catholics the right to worship freely. It would be fair to assert, then, that a major opportunity for uniting the two Netherlands was lost in the early 1640s, as it had been lost the previous decade. Now, of course, there was the added wrinkle that where the Dutch were apparently unwilling to permit Catholic worship, the French certainly were. But the French had problems of greater urgency in 1644 than a desire to seize the Spanish Netherlands. We must hurt France, was how Maximilian of Bavaria described the goal of the imperial cause in early 1644 during a conference at Passau. The plan was to send a mostly Bavarian army under the command of Franz von Mercy against Brissac, which had fallen in late 1638. Threatening this key French position would either compel the French to respond, whereupon von Mercy would defeat their army in the open, or Brissac would fall and Bavaria would be secured. Confidence was high among the Bavarian camp in the aftermath of Tuttlingen, which had shattered French confidence late the previous year, but it was also high because France was perceived to be at a distinct disadvantage because of the Swedish war against Denmark. But Bavarian confidence was misplaced, as von Mercy began the campaign late and was forced to besiege Freiburg before confronting Brissac. By the time he reached Brissac in August 1644, Condé, the victor of Roquois, had arrived with reinforcements. By this point, we'll recall from the last episode, Matthias Gallus was on his way northwards with an army of 18,000. Any suggestion the emperor might sufficiently aid his Bavarian ally with an attack across the Upper Rhine was undone, thanks to some deft diplomacy undertaken by Oxenstierna late in the previous year. Taking his cue from Gustavus Adolphus's negotiations with Muscovy in the previous decade, where the Tsar was entreated to attack the Polish king, thereby freeing Sweden to intervene in the empire in 1630, here the Swedish Chancellor extended his feelers far to the east once more, this time to the Ottoman vassal of Transylvania. The partition of Hungary between the Habsburgs and Ottomans had left a royal Hungarian rump state for Vienna, through which the crown of Hungary was now claimed, but it also left two other states, occupied Hungary and the autonomous vassal of Transylvania. The princes of Transylvania had intervened with great effect in the early phases of the Thirty Years' War, and in spring 1644, thanks to secret negotiations undertaken by Swedish agents, Transylvanian prince Georgi Rakoczy 
was induced to invade once more. The arrival of an army under Rikachi seriously hampered any immediate plans the Emperor might have had to jump quickly to Denmark's defence. The campaign which followed actually lasted only for half the year, as Rikachi found the newly Catholicised populace of Royal Hungary far less willing to join him than they had 20 years before. By June 1644, Rikachi had even sued for peace, but the distraction had done its work and occupied imperial attention just long enough to protect Torstensen's flank. Torstensen was ready for Gallus's army by the time it arrived, and the Transylvanian cameo meant that neither Sweden nor France suffered for their policies. Furthermore, when Franz von Mercy's Bavarian plan misfired, and after a bloody draw, he failed to dislodge the French from Brysac, his battered army retreated in haste. Condé's army, in sufficient strength, went on to seize all manner of positions along the mine, including Filsberg, Speyer, Mines and Worms, the Rhenish heartland of the empire, and a great cultural base. This is all to say that the French military position was greatly reinforced by the events of 1644. While there had been some disappointments, such as, for instance, the replacement of Pope Urban VIII with the more Hispanophile Pope Innocent X, sound military progress had been made in Flanders, along the Rhine and in Catalonia. The reserves of the Spanish king continued to trickle away. The agreement with the Dutch had been clarified, and French agents had arrived to begin the Westphalian negotiations. Further afield, Sweden's defeat of Denmark, made certain by the end of the year, could only serve as a boon to French fortunes once the empowered Torstensen returned to focus solely on Germany. In addition to these gains, French diplomacy had pinpointed Maximilian of Bavaria, the so-called soul of the Emperor's Council, as the key to the German war. Much as Maximilian perceived the defeat of France as the key to a victory over Sweden, so too did Cardinal Mazarin appreciate the central importance, in a strategic, political and economic sense, of Bavaria to the Emperor. The campaign which followed in 1644 demonstrated that Bavarian arms were not so potent as the victory at Tuttlingen had suggested. Yet, as French negotiators, newly arrived in Munster, understood, the battlefield was where the metal of the foe would be tested and any victories leveraged at the peace table. As 1644 gave way to 1645, it was hoped that a turn in fortunes might present new opportunities in the already stuffed conference cities. Little did the French, Swedes, Bavarians, Habsburgs or anyone else know, following the stop-start year of 1644, precisely how important 1645 was destined to be. We'll see just how important 1645 was in the next episode, my dear history friends and patrons, but for now, I just want to point your attention to the fact that until the end of February, because I've extended this offer, you can get 16% off your annual Patreon memberships, and I've basically extended it because I thought, well, if you missed out, now you have more of an opportunity. And this opportunity is not just to access the latest Patreon series on Anglo-American relations in the 1830s and early 1840s, it's also to access, and I counted this recently, more than 60 hours of exclusive content, which is pretty amazing, and I double-checked it, triple-checked it several times just to make sure it was right, because, yeah, I didn't really know I had made that much stuff, but yeah, 
There is a lot there, and there is something for everyone. Whether it's Poland is not yet lost, the Suez Crisis... Jan Sobieski's biography series, Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, the 1956 era of de-Stalinization and revolt across the Soviet Union, there is just so much going on. And of course, as always, you can get the scripts to match if you want to engage in further reading, because what could be more fun than listening? Reading, of course. These little plugs aside, thanks so much for supporting this show. We've nearly paid off all the fees, and as soon as I do, I will launch a massive celebration. Or maybe I'll just invade Prussia, not quite sure yet. But either way, thanks so much for listening here, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 